the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And welcome back as we head into Hour 2. It's a delight to bring back uh, one of the sharpest, keenest uh, minds, analysts, commentators, uh, John Hinderocker, uh, co-editor, co-publisher at the Powerline blog, among other things, PowerlineBlog.com. John, how the heck are you? It's good to be back in touch, brother. Hey, it's great to be on your show, Seth. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I wanted to talk to you. You titled the piece, uh, it's almost self-explanatory in your title, Can Elon Musk Save Twitter? And I just wanted to talk around a few things with you about that as well as uh, the proposed model legislation you have um, you have offered up to various uh, legislators, including in your own state of Minnesota. Uh, before we get to the model legislation, though, John, I have to tell you, um, I, I noticed just a little bit in your in your piece too. There's you're you're not jumping for joy as much as a lot of people on our team have been since Elon it was announced or discovered that Elon Musk became the second or the largest shareholder there. I too am a little. I I, I mean I'm happy about it. It's a good thing I think, but there's some reasons for reservations here and there. I first and foremost is. It, do we is this what we've come to as a society where we all vest our hopes in one hopefully fortunate multi-billionaire somewhere who agrees with us to save our political space if that if that if that point makes sense to you Hey man, he's an oligarch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, at least, but at least he's our oligarch. Yeah. Let me just say this up yeah. front, Seth. Yeah. Yeah. The fundamental divide in American politics today is on free speech. Yes, right. Uh, conservatives are in favor of free speech. Liberals are opposed to free speech. Right. And we're getting into an environment, I think, where everything else is really starting to pale by comparison, it's kind of like the 1850s. I wouldn't stretch the analogy too far, but in the 1850s, nobody remembers a politician's views on building a particular canal or, you know, tariff rates or whatever. What was relevant... The need for position, a Homestead Act, right, exactly. Right. Right. What was relevant right. was your position right. on slavery. Right. And that's, right. that's how people have gone down in history. Right. What was their position on slavery? I think we're in a moment kind of like that uh, with free speech. Everything else, you, you, you look at liberals, like you know, a guy like Green, uh, Glenn Greenwald, yeah. for example, yeah. someone like Alan Dershowitz, yeah. you know, lifelong liberal, and yet he's detested by today's liberals and, and greeted with open arms by today's conservatives, because free speech, I think, has really become the defining issue of our time. You know, you make a really powerful point there and a good analogy. Let me remind me if I miss it, John, to come back to your analogy to slavery, because I think there's something big there. But on the Alan Dershowitz, uh, Glenn Greenwald front, uh, maybe even throw in a few others, maybe Andrew Sullivan. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Maybe a few others like that. You think mm -hmm. about 
Nadine Strawson, I'm tr- blanking on the old math professor who used to be the head of the ACLU. You know, it's funny. When you read them, um, they sound like conservatives, but it's only because of that point. You're right. It's only because of that point. I mean, I think they still vote Democrat. I think Dershowitz still bra- brags about doing it. But they do sound like one of you or me, John. They really do, because I think you're right. That has become such a dividing line. And, OK, here's my point about your analogy that I think is so uh, poignant. Um Lincoln in his day, and and I guess we in ours, we identify this as really not just another opinion to argue about back and forth perhaps. This is really going to the core of who we are as a country, who we are as a constitutional republic. If slavery wasn't wrong, nothing was. If free speech doesn't matter, very little can. I, I think they're they're not exactly on par in the enormity of their of the, of their crimes, but they are on par in the po- in the pregnancy of import to what we are as a country. Well, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think that free speech has become really the defining issue of our time. I have no idea what Elon Musk thinks about marginal tax rates or or tariffs or foreign policy toward you know Russia or whatever. What I do know is that he's in favor of free speech, and and right now that makes him an ally. And and so not, I, yeah. I, I would love to see Elon take control of Twitter. I'd love to see him buy a controlling interest in the company and uh, appoint a new, uh, get a new uh, board of directors and, 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 and management that would commit to Twitter to being a free speech platform. So in your post and where you've got me agreeing with you fully on that point is – You're someone who has built from nothing a massively important, a major website, a blog, website, whatever you want to call it. From zero, you built it. You know what it takes. And your point is, yeah, we can start our own. It's really hard. Do you want to say something about that? I mean, a lot of these ventures come and go pretty fast, don't they? Well, as I say in my post, uh, Seth, I have been worried for quite a while that the major uh, tech platforms may turn out to be natural monopolies. We used to have Facebook and MySpace. Now we only have Facebook. Why is that? I I think the answer might be because of network effects. And and network effects simply mean that, that, that with respect to some services, the value of the service depends on how many other people use it. Yeah. A highway is the opposite. The more people are using the highway, the less valuable it is. But a social media platform, why is Facebook popular? Well, because it's a one-stop shop. If you want to track down your old high school classmates, you don't have to go to 27 different sites. You can just go to one, Facebook. And so I think some people say, break up Facebook, break up Twitter. You know, my, my fear is that if... If that were done, that if, if, if Facebook were, were broken up into six different similar platforms, give it five or ten years and it would be back down to one. I think you're right, and I don't know that breaking it up actually gets us what we want, uh, which is kind of what you're going at with your model legislation. That's a pretty good segue. Do you want to talk to us about the elements of what you propose? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I am convinced that the best approach to this issue is, number one, state legislation, because we can't get anything done in Washington. The Democrats don't want it to get done, so that's a non-starter. So it's got to be done at the state level. And, and I think that it's not wise 
to to couch legislation in terms of censorship, you know, no censorship in social media platforms, because you run head-on into a couple things. Number one, these are private companies, which under the First Amendment, no, obviously legislation could change that, but the, but the, his, the history and the culture are that as private companies, you know, they... You know they, they they can do what they want. And number two, they have a point. You know, Facebook comes in and they say, you know, we have to moderate content for the sake of user experience. Sure. We don't want child pornography. Sure. you have to do on it. Facebook. You we have, we don't yeah. want as you know terrorists organizing on Facebook. Right. It happens anyway. But but they're right when they say they don't they don't want those kinds of things. So I think that going the censorship route is really beating your head against a wall. So I well, I think the best approach is state legislation that bans discrimination in the moderation of user content. And I've drafted a statute, a bill, that, that bans discrimination on the basis of race, sex, religion, and political orientation. And for any, and it provides a right to a jury trial, it provides statutory damages of $50,000 per violation, along with attorney's fees. And so if a state passes this law, if you think you've been discriminated against on the basis of political orientation, like me, for example, I got kicked off Twitter for no apparent reason, you know, my account just disappeared. And uh, I'd love to sue them um, and do some discovery and find out what happened to my Twitter account. Mm-hmm. They claim they've never heard of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. so, so, so it provides a private cause of action and it bans discrimination on all of those grounds, including... Uh, a political orientation when 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 the social media platform is doing uh, moderation of content. I want to direct people to go look at it. You can you can go to powerlineblog.com and see John's post. It's titled "Can Elon Musk Save Twitter?" and he embeds his model legislation. It's only I think about three pages, if I'm not wrong. Uh, am I right about that? It's only about three. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. short. Yeah. yeah, very readable. Yeah. Now, now, John, is this? In some ways, well, can I keep you another segment? Do you have to go? Absolutely. Okay, because the question on the other side of this break, if I can ask you, is this in some ways akin to, say, the Civil Title VII or the Civil Rights Act of 1964? Is is it kind of giving a form of public accommodation here where we are injecting certain desiderata that these places simply cannot do? Can we talk about that on the other side of the break? Is that is that the right analogy? Is it in absolutely? Absolutely. It's a great analogy. All right. Perfect. I'm Seth Liebson. He's John Hinderocker, among other things, co-publisher, co-editor of the Powerline blog, powerlineblog.com. He also happens to be one of my favorite analysts and thinkers. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John Hinderocker is our guest editor, co-publisher of the Powerline blog, powerlineblog.com. And we're talking about uh, a little bit about the Elon Musk um, uh, purchase into into Twitter, but also, you know, the lar- larger long-term efforts here. John Hinderocker wrote some model legislation available to states to use. It, John, is it wending its way through Minnesota's uh, legislature a little bit, or what's the yeah, status Yeah, it is. There? It's been introduced to the Minnesota Senate, Good. and it will shortly be introduced to the Minnesota House. I think it will pass the Senate. Yeah. I think that the Democrats who control the Minnesota House will do everything possible to prevent it coming to a vote mm-hmm. in that body, because a lot of Minnesota Democrats uh, 
would would are not comfortable voting against legislation that bans race and sex discrimination. Yeah, maybe so. I, I, I hate to almost tell you this because I hate the thought of it, but you know, maybe go get the tort lawyers on your side. They can be pretty powerful, <laughs> and I think you've given them, you will be giving them a little more work here. But yeah, uh, good in, point. Yeah, in, in this sense, though, that I was raising is the analogy to what you're. Um, arguing for that what, what you're promoting here, John, is that a little bit like uh, the 64 Civil Rights Act in the sense that, you know, these were private hotels, private restaurants, private institutions that the government was now saying who you can't refuse to serve or hire. Is it a little bit like that? Seth, it's very much like that. Okay. And this is one of the reasons why I think non-discrimination is the way to go because while people immediately say if you start talking about private companies like Facebook and Twitter, well, all private companies can discriminate, can, yep. uh, can censor. Right. Fine. But we're all used to the idea that, at least in some realms, they can't discriminate. Mm-hmm. So they cannot discriminate in public accommodations. They cannot discriminate in employment. And here we're saying if you're a social media company, you can't discriminate in user moderation. So that that puts us squarely within a kind of law that people are generally very familiar with. And one of the advantages of this approach, Seth, is that I think we could very easily take ideas that have been developed in these other contexts and apply them here. For example, suppose Twitter says, suppose you sue Twitter because they canceled your account. Okay. And they say, well, we, we canceled your account because it was violent. Yeah. Well, you get to do discovery, you get to find the emails and so on where they talked about canceling your account. Right. But beyond that, you can argue, no, 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 that's not the real reason. That was a, that's a pretext because did you censor the account of the woman who held up the bloody decapitated right. head of right. Donald Trump? Right. How about the did mullahs of Iran? There, right. there was something yeah. like 37,000 Twitter accounts that did tweets using the hashtag Rape Melania. No kidding, Just John. Are you serious? Thing. Are you serious? Yes. Say it 37, again. 37,000 wow. rape Melania. Well, how about them? Did they no get canceled? Well, the answer is no, they didn't. No so, so this would open the door to, to plaintiffs, people who have been uh, censored by Facebook, Twitter, and so on, to, to do some discovery and to make the argument and say, I don't believe that's why you canceled my account. Now, someone might make the objection, I've heard it made, that the problem there is it will take money to sue an organization like Twitter. But I think I would respond by saying, "Mm, maybe not if you get organizations, I mean, I don't mean to eliminate a good one, but something like Alliance Defending Freedom, maybe your group, you know, these groups could sue on behalf. Couldn't they? They could take as clients. Uh, well, you know. under under my statute, under my statute, Seth, they don't have to because it provides fifty thousand dollar statutory damages per offense, okay. along with attorney's fees. Okay. You mentioned getting the trial lawyers on board before right. the break, Seth, right. and that's a great idea because what what the statute does is to incentivize uh, self enforcement. Yes. With a fifty thousand dollar damage claim and attorney's fees recoverable. Yeah. People who think that they have been discriminated against have every motivation to go ahead and bring the claim. And I can tell you, Seth, that that one of the things that would cause these liberals in Silicon Valley to quake in their in their uh, in their boots, in their That's sandals, yes, boots, yes, in their whatever. Birkenstocks, yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's the thought of going in front of a jury, yeah. 
in a state like South Dakota yeah. or, or Tennessee or Florida, all the yep. places they that they look down on yeah. and have to justify their 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 censorship. John, uh, would these kinds of cases, removing yourself uh, from being the uh, author of this legislation, do you think these kinds of cases would be fairly uh, – how do I want to put this – Fairly easy to prove. I mean, fairly easy to, you know, you wouldn't need a lot of them. You would need like maybe four or five to send the message and stop the behavior, wouldn't you? I would think maybe. I, I think that if a few of the larger red states uh, pass laws like this, it would have an immediate impact. Yeah. Uh, these people would be really concerned about the idea of thousands of lawsuits all across the country um, and, and all of them heading toward a, a jury trial. And, and and it's not very hard. I, I, I as you know, Seth, I handled major losses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, you've done this stuff before. Yeah. Dollars. yeah. And it's not that hard to do basic electronic discovery. If you ask a company like Twitter to produce all of the emails that anybody ever produced that in any way refer to your account, that's cheap to do. Yeah. You know, if you're a lawyer, you, you can do that in about 15 minutes. Now, it's, it's not so easy for Twitter to respond to it, but it's not that hard. You know? I'm guessing and it's so, easier and easier. I mean, I, they, they would obviously engage in as many legal delaying taxes as possible, but I, I would just think the way things are computerized, it wouldn't be that hard to pull up everything that mentions John Hibberocco. It's not that hard. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the cases that I handled in the yeah. mature years of my career, the parties routinely exchanged millions of pages sure. of documents, sure. millions sure. of pages. Now, that, that obviously is, is, is far more extensive, but by legal standards, what we're talking about here is, is very easy. Do you see any resistance from anyone on our side about this? I mean, is there a libertarian? There might be a little libertarian concern, but then again, maybe not. I think this divides the libertarians a little bit. Well, good question, Seth. I, I've seen a little bit. I, I've seen you know, it's, it's, some of it, I think, comes from sort of the Chamber of Commerce Republicans uh-huh. who, who view um, – uh, corporations as being almost sacrosanct. Yeah, and lawyers. And, yeah. and there's a little bit of that, oh, we can't tell a private right. company what to right. do. Right, a little bit. Well, the truth is we tell private companies what to do and what not to do all the time. I mean, has anybody read the uh, Anyone the looked at the CFR lately? Yeah, the Code of Federal <laughs> Regs lately? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly right. Well, John, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that uh, you're doing this. I'm going uh, to be doing my best to promote this because I think this is the right idea and the right way to go. We cannot continue to just wait on American oligarchs, right, who move here from South Africa or something. We just can't. I mean, this <laughs> that, is... at best, that's plan B. Yeah, okay, plan B, import more oligarchs. We may may have a few. John, you guys do such great work. I love uh, I love having you on. I love that uh, you're my friend. But more than anything, I love uh, what you've done with Powerline Blog. It is such an important resource. I don't know what we'd be as a movement without it. So kudos to you and Steve and Scott for everything you've built and everything you guys do. Really, thank you. Well, thank you so much, Seth. All right, brother. Be good. Thanks for, uh, thanks for spending some of your evening with us, and uh, we'll talk soon. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. You betcha. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508- 0960. We will be right back. Oh, here's a tip for runners in the audience. If you're ever uh, in the middle of a long run, as I was today, and and you just need a little pick me up. That's the song to put on your play. That's the song to download or put on your playlist or put in your queue. 
lawyers, guns, and money. That'll get you going. Crank it up. It'll get you back into 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 the speed you want. Um, I was getting a little sluggish after a after a run, and I thought I need after a long part of the run, I, I needed a little of that. I put in some of that. I put in. Uh, well, I can give you a list if you want. I can someday. I can maybe share my my playlist. I also got an interesting email the other day from a listener. It was based on a conversation with Mark Bauerlein. So I guess it was yesterday. Uh, he wrote me after the show. Mark and I were talking about books. Mark's a professor of literature at Emory. And uh, we were talking about books, that uh, classical books that um, help explain the times we're in. And I asked him what it is we're in. Are we in um, – 1984, are we in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World? Uh, is it Franz Kafka's Trial or is it uh, The Death of Socrates in Plato's uh, Phaedo or something like that? Mark was uh, saying, you know, we've been through all of those, I mean, at different phases. Uh, and uh, most recently he thinks 1984, but then moving into Kafka's Trial. So uh, we're all, we're going to all need to redo uh, reread Kafka's trial if we haven't read it in the first thing. And I'm thinking uh, just a game. Uh, this l- listener wrote me saying, you know, give us a list of books. What what do we? You know, a lot of us didn't get this growing up. Yeah, I'm one of them. I didn't get a lot of it growing up either. I got a lot, but not all of it. Not all I should, and not all I've been reading now for the first time that I might have read better then or read it all back in 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 my salad days. But it might be fun. Maybe we, maybe we, maybe we do a. We've talked a little bit about it here and here and there. Maybe we do a book club. Uh, if you're interested in doing it uh, with me and the rest of the audience, I, I'm sure we can figure out a way to do it. Maybe it's a side podcast. Maybe it's a part of the show once a week. I don't know. What what Dennis has a few isolated parts of his show, right? He has an Ultimate Issues Hour. He has a Male Female Hour. Does he have another, or is it just those two? I think it's just those two. Maybe once a week we'll do a book hour uh, or half hour or something. Anyway, uh, I need to get to something else John Hinderocker wrote about. Um, I don't know how many of you remember 2020 calling me. Uh, maybe you, you, got, you received these things and didn't call me. But emails and letters from organizations, whether they were your schools, your kids' schools, or maybe they were museums, maybe they were nonprofit charities you had given some money to or on the mailing list stuff for some reason or another. All of them engaged in confessing their racism now that the Black Lives Matter uh, organization had started encouraging them to do so. And, and in some ways creating an ideological uh, blackmail that everyone felt they had to forcibly confess their institution's racism and how they're now going to reexamine Remember all this, Bill? People were calling saying, you know, I got this letter that kids from my kid's school, the school is telling me they're going to reexamine and double down on reexamining their systemic racism and their historic racism. You know, I'm just glad that that, you know, I was with some of you who were saying, you know, resist this nonsense, resist this temporary excitation from a Marxist organization that you're just learning about for the first time that has some very, very, very odd viewpoints, not to mention accountability. And 
a lot of people were, you know, hoodwinked by this stuff. A lot of people were dragged into it, in part because it sounded good, in part because the cultural elites were telling you you had to, in part because there was a, uh, you know, a reverberation uh, within the different organizations around our country or, for that matter, around our state where there was an echo chamber, if you will, and in part because, you know, it's without a job like this, with a company like I have backing, you know, our ability to have these kinds of conversations. It's intimidating. It's hard to go against up uh, up against that culture where you will be called a racist if you dissent. Um, but you know, we had Wilford Riley on uh, talking about this about a month and a half ago. He wrote a piece in Spiked, talking about all of the money that was spent by the Black Lives Matter organization that didn't go to black lives. You know where most of it went to? It went to a lot of transgender organizations. But there's more to it. There's much more to it. That's not really the worst of it. My presumption is if you give to a left-wing organization, much less a Marxist one, um, you might not have as many complaints when they in turn give that money to another left-wing or Marxist organization. But what about what they did to enwealthen themselves? Let's talk about that when we come back. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Balance of Nature. What a great company, not just because their fruits and veggies are a fantastic product. I take it every day. Everyone who has taken it that I know of and has responded to me, whether they've taken it because they heard it uh, about it here or because, you know, as a friend, uh, they've talked to me about it. They all love it. They all I, I don't know of any remorse about it. Um, it's just pure fruits and veggies uh, and a lot of them. 15 whole vegetables, 16 whole fruits you just take once a day. It's also just a great company. We're going to be doing something with them. I'll tell you about it a little bit more later. We're still working it out. But not just a company that believes in your speech rights but American history too. They're doing a neat effort on American history and uh, we'll talk about that in due course. But I'm just telling you it's as a product and as a company – balanceofnature.com. I'm delighted they're a sponsor. I'm delighted to be able to speak out on behalf of them. If you do order their fruits and veggies at balanceofnature.com, make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Discount code BALANCE. Maintain, protect, boost your health the natural way. And it's all natural. 100%. Not any fraction of it. 100%. And third-party tested. All right. As I was talking about in the last segment, uh, Hinderocker uh, who we had on earlier, also has a post I wanted to share with you about the Black Lives Matter. He calls it the Black Lives Matter scam. The New York Magazine did an expose, so it's going to get a little more attention than Wilford Riley and Spiked, but it focuses mainly on a $6 million house in California, the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, the BLM umbrella organization, the Patrice Coulours and, the, and those, um, those Marxists bought with donated funds – Okay, they bought this house with donated funds in October of 2020. Uh, BLM has plenty of money to spare, having taken in by its own account 90 million dollars in donations in that year alone, of which it still had 60 million dollars unspent on hand as of about a month ago. Think about that. You're giving money from, I think, a misdirected but a good place in your heart, so to speak, theoretically. Doing an organization to help 
support the cause of black lives and they're they're spending it on themselves and not spending it. That's that's what they're doing. The group's founders love real estate. The New York Post revealed in April that uh, of last year that Patrice Colors had just spent $3 million then to buy herself four homes. You won't read that about that on Facebook, by the way. You will not read about that on Facebook. Um, it's currently not possible to share the Post's article on Colors home purchase on Facebook because the site's parent company, Meta, has labeled that content abusive. Abusive. Not even racist. Now it's just abusive to tell the truth because, you know, words can be violence. Violence isn't violence, but words can be violence. It's, in other words, just simply a matter of inconvenience for the powers that be. It doesn't run close to the narrative they want. The author in the New York Post story um, got access to emails and other documents in which the Black Lives Matter leaders discuss how to spin their $6 million real estate purchase. Here's one. On March 30, I asked the organization questions about the house, which is known internally as campus. Afterwards, leaders circulated an internal strategy memo with possible responses ranging from can we kill the story to our angle needs to be to deflate ownership of the property. Yet you would think self-described Marxists, as Patrice Kalour said they were, would want to deflate ownership of the property. It reminds me of the story – See if I can get it as close to right as possible. Yes. Leonid Brezhnev, who is the Soviet uh, premier chairman of the Communist Party uh, for most of probably this audience's life. He succeeded Khrushchev um, and then uh, and then died in the uh, early 80s, I guess. Uh, Leonid Brezhnev was showing uh, his mom one of his dachas, one of his vacation homes. And of course, it's you know, more resplendent than probably this $6 million campus at BLM. Very beautiful, ornate vacation home. Leonid Brezhnev is showing his mom. And his mom says, so this is what it means for the workers of the world to unite. You know, now, who knows if it's apocryphal or not. It doesn't matter. You take the point. <laughs> he self-describes, self-described -tra self trained Marxists, that's Patrice Kuller's phrase, and they need to deflate the ownership of the property angle, the first thing Karl Marx cared about. Yeah, yeah. They also hired a private detective. Your money went to hiring BLM, a private detective, uh, to look into uh, detractors and journalists, including the New York Post author. How do you like that? Not a very good one if the if the if the if the if the, if the news journalist at the New York not New York Post New York Magazine if the if the journalist at the New York Magazine knows that a PI private investigator is looking into his stuff, they can't be very good. Which is not really the point. Not really the point. It's not really funny either. It's not really funny. It's a scam, is what it is. It's a scam. Uh, it is widely known that BLM's finances are a mess, Hinderocker writes. It doesn't appear that the organization has ever carried out the most basic filings required for nonprofits. It was awarded tax-exempt status from the IRS in December of 2020, two months after the home's purchase. The distinction meant the group would have to disclose information about the donors and expenditures in an annual filing known as anyone who's been involved with nonprofits knows the filing known as a 990. 
But Black Lives Matter uh, uh, Global Foundation has not submitted those forms for 2020 or, for that matter, 2021. It also has problems at various state levels. The Washington Examiner reported in February that California's AG told the group it was considered delinquent. Will anything be done about it? No. BLM Global Fund has since retained the high-profile Democratic lawyer Mark Elias, of course, and maneuvered to get more time to formally submit data from 2020 by switching from calendar year to fiscal year tracking. In other words, folks, you were scammed. You were scammed to enrich three people. That's what you were doing as you were beating your breasts and thinking you were doing something good. When those of us who were around just a little bit longer and had seen this kind of thing before were warning you, yeah, you were scammed. Where do you go to get your money back? You don't. You don't. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Uh, Bethany Mandel is going to join us uh, at the top of the next hour in just a few minutes here. Uh, you know, we go through these massive cultural and political upheavals and convolutions in our society and, and you kind of – you look around asking for who can be helpful on this sort of thing, um, who can be helpful, who can – who can be a champion uh, when it comes to what we've been doing with our kids, not we, but the cultural elites and the progressives. Bethany is about as good as they come. I, I, I just she has been a champ. She is fantastic. She was early on and <clears throat> excuse me, and hard on the case when it came to vaccinating and masking and harming children during covid to protect adults, uh, which it didn't anyway, but it did scare the you-know-what out of our children, uh, and uh, we're paying that price. Now, she's doing the same when it comes to what we're doing to our children regarding the sexualization of them. So you're not going to want to miss that. One of the things we're going to talk about, if you don't know this story, I wouldn't blame you if you didn't, uh, the Department of Justice, along with the apparatus, the political apparatus of the White House, is uh, now putting out notices uh, to state officials uh, lest they do what Ron DeSantis did, lest they do what Doug Ducey did last week, Governor DeSantis, Governor Ducey, in passing and signing legislation that protects kids, whether it's protecting um, the gender of their sports, whether it's protecting their ability to play uh, competitively and on equal footing, in sports because uh, you won't uh, have equal footing or I don't think anything fairly uh, described as competitive if you allow uh, men into women's sports. That was not the point of women's sports. That was not the point of Title IX. If governors do that sort of thing like Ducey or DeSantis have done or if you try and uh, you know prevent five-year-olds from learning about things that uh, would make as much sense to them as learning, I don't know, uh, advanced chemistry – then um, then you have to know what the White House and the Attorney General are going after them. They have issued letters and memoranda uh, telling these governors they're going to be sued. They're going to be sued for discrimination. Here's the fact sheet from the White House, right off the White House website. Biden-Harris administration advances equality and visibility for transgender, American, uh, transgender Americans. Uh, your president says – um, that this kind of legislation 
uh, will stigmatize and worsen the well-being and mental health of transgender kids. As the president has said, quote, these bills are government overreach at their worst. They are un-American and they must stop. Un-American. Boy, questioning the patriotism now? Was that is that is that what we've gone come down to by thinking that maybe five-year-olds don't need to be sexualized? Six-year-olds maybe don't need to be sexualized? Seven-year-olds don't need to be? That's now the un-American thing? That's not the most interesting thing about this memo from the White House on their website. Most interesting thing is how gosh darn long it is and how many governmental entities they are involving in this, including who knew the Department of State, the Department of Homeland Security. Of course, that would include the TSA. And there's a lot of TS. Who knew the TSA had a role in all this? Oh, but it does. And then, of course, aren't you happy to see that the government is entering the provision of mental health resources and mandates on those mental health resources? And it goes on and on and on. Please read it. Please see what your government is up to. And note when you read how long it is, how much time the government and the apparatuses of government have been working on this. You can tell what's important to this administration by how much time and effort they're putting this stuff out, how much content on this they have put out. This is what's important to them. Well, guess what then? It should be equally, if not more, important to us. We'll be right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com